Well, I welcome all of you to this service of worship of Jesus Christ. Um, This morning we, as always, study the Bible, and that's part of our worship. When our father or mother speaks to us, we listen to them. And when God, our Heavenly Father, speaks to us, we listen to Him. And it is to worship God, to listen to Him. And we're going through the Gospel of Matthew, and you will find up on the wall uh, the part that we're studying this week. If you have a Bible, you can open your Bible to Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. We won't get the whole way through it. We'll have another sermon or two on this text before moving into Matthew 26. You know that we have been in Matthew 25 for a few weeks now, and that Matthew 25 is composed of three sections. In my Bible, they're labeled um, the parable of the ten virgins, and then the parable of the talents, and then the judgment. And all three of them have as a theme being prepared for the coming judgment when Every man will stand before a holy God and give an account for his life and for every deed and every idle word. And this week, uh, having had the point made in the previous two weeks that um, there will be a judgment, then we move into from the warning of being not being ready of the parable of the ten virgins then to the parable of the talents, which begins to focus on what exactly will be judged for. And then finally, the the judgment, which is a combination of sort of mini parables about sheep and goat and shepherd. But also, it's it's an actual account from Jesus of what the judgment seat will be and what will happen there. So it's part history and part uh, parable. It's very interesting to note as we read it that both the parable of the talents and this account of the judgment... um, focus on uh, those who have sinned sins of omission. And I keep wanting to emphasize that with us, that we tend to be very, very careful to avoid sins of commission. So the Bible says don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery. And so we say I haven't stolen and I haven't lied and I haven't committed adultery. And we feel like we're righteous. But sense of omission, we omit something. We don't do. You know, the Bible says, to him who knoweth to do right and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And so what you're going to see this morning is that the focus of this text is on things that God has commanded us to do that we simply don't do. We're supposed to what? We're supposed to clothe the naked. No, we don't do it. Never forget... um, a wealthy woman in one of my former churches uh, talking to her one day about our church needing to help the poor. And she was a county supervisor, and she looked at me, and she said, Timothy, she said, we pay taxes for that. And she wasn't simply saying, I'm not. She was saying, we ought not. And so the Bible tells us we're supposed to clothe the naked, We're supposed to feed the hungry. We're supposed to visit the lonely, those who are in prison and those who are sick. We're supposed to give drink to those who are thirsty. We're supposed to. And so when we don't do that, this is a sin of omission. But, you know, I mean, really, here's how I deal with sins of omission in my brain. You know, I go through life and I think, 
Well, I can't do everything the Holy Spirit tells me to do. I mean, I'd not have a life, you know. And so I tell myself that endlessly. Well, you know, you just can't spend your life feeding the naked. Or, yeah, you can't spend your life clothing the hungry here. And so what we do is we're very scrupulous and very pharisaical in avoiding lies. But, of course, you know, you tell them all the, all the time anyhow. <laughs> and we're scrupulous in avoiding adultery. But, of course, you know, you do it all the time anyhow. And, but you feel so self-righteous as you go down the street and say, we pay taxes for that. And that's, that guy's a scumbag. He'd just go get drunk or, you know, do, you know, crystal or, you know. And so both the talents and this week, the account of the judgment, the parable of the sheep and the goats, focus on the fact that God expects us to do what he tells us to do, not simply to not do what he tells us not to do. In other words, the burden is very, very heavy. So let's read together Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. This is the word of God, and it is... Eternally true. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, Jesus' account of the last judgment begins with these words, verse 31, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit 
on the throne of his glory or on his glorious throne. Now, the first time our Lord came, his coming was not glorious. When Jesus first came, he was born in a stable. He was a transient. He was, he was in the womb of a woman who had no place to lay her head. The motels were full. And so there was a little garden shed behind that held the tractor, but instead of a tractor that smells of gas, what the shed behind or the cave behind held was animals and their manure. And so Jesus came in the middle of the awful smell of excrement. Because if you've ever been anywhere on a farm, you know what a manger is. The manger sounds sweet, but it smells of manure. And the people that were announced his coming, who were they? Well, they were shepherds out in the field at night. People that are rich aren't out in fields at night keeping watch over their flocks, right? And who were the people that he was born to? Well, he was born to Joseph and Mary. And Mary, her, even her, her own betrothed, believed that she had been unfaithful to him. In other words, everything about his birth was uh, leading away from him being the son of God. And his life, we know, was a life of humiliation and poverty. When people came to him to ask him if they could be his disciples, you remember his response was, are you sure? The son of man has no place to lay his head. You sure? And we know that for much of his life, the religious leaders and muckety-mucks those weird guys that has a song for everything. Oh, this is awful. And so the first time that our Lord came, his arrival had no glory. And if you watch the disciples responding to Jesus as life went on, you'll see that constantly they're trying to mediate the tension between who they believe he is spiritually, who the Holy Spirit has revealed him to be, that this is the Messiah, this is the Son of God. But every single evidence of their lives, of his life, of the plots of the muckety-mucks to put him to death, the hatred, is leading away from what they know to be true. And they're constantly trying to deal with this. Finally, Peter sees some glory, you know, he's up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And what's Peter's response? It's like, You know what old men are? Young dorks who grew up. (laughs) 
And so finally, on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's a hint of Jesus' glory, right? And so what does Peter want to do? Should I put up a tent? Can't we just hang here for a while? This is like unbelievable. No, we can't hang here and don't tell anybody about it, says Jesus. And so he finally is reduced to being outside the city, not even in the city, on a cross, something that was so humiliating that when the sentence was pronounced against guys that would go to the cross, they never used the word cross because it was an obscenity in the ancient world. There was a circumlocution that was used to avoid the pronunciation of the word cross. And this is Jesus. Now, think about that. And now think about when the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the mighty angels. Here's what the Bible tells us about that moment. That moment will be glorious. In Revelation 1, 7 and 8, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Why are they going to mourn over him? Well, because there's no more putting it off. There's not the God of Sri Lanka and the God of Japan, the God of Australia and the God of Great Britain and the God of the Presbyterians and the God of Rome. And There's only one God. And when he returns, every eye will see him. So whatever denials the academics have gone through in this life, However much they've laughed at your commitment to purity, however much your friends have turned aside to the path that leads to destruction and have a boyfriend and live with their boyfriend, on that moment, Jesus Christ will come in his glory. And every eye will see him. And the Bible says, even those who pierced him. Now, it's not just talking about the soldiers under the cross. It's talking about the Jews who cried out, crucify him. It's talking about you. It's talking about me when we have pierced him. Every eye that pierced him will see him. And all the tribes of the earth will what? Will mourn over him. Why? Because he has appeared in his authority and his glory. It's clear the judgment has arrived. And we have pierced him. So it is to be, Revelation 1-7, then verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the A and the Z, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 to 18, We have another account of this moment. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel. Curtis, just very quickly, speak as much like an archangel as you can. Just fill this place. Or sing. I don't care what you do, but let us hear your voice. Come on, give it to us. As loud as you can, dude. God gave you your voice for this moment. Do it. 
that's a good script. So what do you think the voice of the archangel was? What do you think it is? And then it says, and with the trumpet of God. What do you think that trumpet is? It's not a little coronet. It's not a horn. It's not a tuba. It's not a Barry sax. Whatever that trumpet is, it is awesome. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so when Jesus returns, he will be announced by a great and a mighty shout, by the trumpet of God, by the voice of the archangel. And when he returns, every eye will see him and his terrible glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And at that moment, all those who do not believe in Jesus Christ will begin to mourn. And they will cry out for the mountains to fall on them. There will be no more humility. It will be glory. In fact, the text can be translated that then he will sit on his glorious throne, but actually it could be translated, then he will sit on his throne of glory. In other words, what's the glory of Jesus Christ? This is what he'll sit on. What is his glory? Well, his glory is his holiness. His glory is his justice. His glory is His love. His glory is His authority. And we begin in our, in our pathetically small and timid and superficial lives to see reality. When the Son of Man returns in His glory, seated on His throne of glory, all the angels with him. And what will he do? <clears throat> well, he's going to set about his work of judgment. And he will judge with absolute purity and absolute authority. Matthew 28:18 Jesus came up and spoke to his disciples saying what? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In Philippians 2, 9 and 10, we, tell, we are told how pleased his father was with his obedience. And it says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every knee will bow. One of my favorite statements of Scripture and I love to think about who will be bowing the knee to Jesus Christ. Carl Sagan will be bowing the knee to Christ. He will mourn. He will cry out for the mountains to fall on him. Christopher Hitchens will be screaming for the mountains to fall on him. John 5.22 says, Not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. 
And in Matthew 16:27 we read for the son of man is going to come in the glory of his father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. And so God has given Jesus Christ his only begotten son all authority and all judgment. And we read in verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. You think of all the separations that you and I have in life. You know, for instance, there's blondes and there are brunettes. There are thin and there are fat. There are strong and there are weak. There are rich and there are poor. They're educated, they're uneducated. They're professionals, and there are blue-collar workers. They're Presbyterians, and there are Lutherans. There are white and black and brown and yellow. There are people who are preppy, and there are people who are funk. And there are people who are skaters. Republicans and Democrats and independents and people that don't vote. There are pro-choice and pro-life people. There are pro-fornication and anti-fornication people. There are pure people in marriages and people that aren't pure. There are compassionate people and people who are hard-hearted. There are people who care about people without green cards and people who say serves them right about people without green cards. There are people who salve their consciences with thoughts of their taxes and social welfare, and there are people who take personally the need that they see in front of them. There are all kinds of separations that we have. But what the Bible tells us is that all nations, in other words, every single person who has ever lived, all nations will stand in front of the worthy judge. And then there will be how many separations? How many? Two. That's it. Two. And will there be Presbyterians who will be goats? The amazing thing is that there will be any Presbyterians that won't be goats. I won't say it. Some of you know I'm thinking about Baptists, but I won't even talk about Baptists. <laughs> there will only be two categories. And they will be divided as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. At the time, the herds out on the fields um, in Palestine had goats and sheep together. The sheep were not white with an occasional black sheep, but they were different colors. And so they blended in. But at night, sheep could stay out when it was cold. Goats couldn't. And so it was common for people to see the process of a shepherd calling the sheep and separating the sheep from the goats. And we know from Scripture that God's people are referred to as sheep. And so the sheep are the good ones. The sheep are those who belong to God. Right. And it's very interesting also that all through history, everybody agrees that the right hand is good and the left hand is bad. I'm sorry to those of you that are left handed. 
and the sheep go to the right hand, and the goats go to the left hand. All the nations before this God. Again, let me emphasize, there will be no God of Haiti and another God of Brazil and another God of New Zealand and another God of the United States and another God of Mexico. All the nations before Jesus Christ and he will judge them. Now, how will he judge them? What does it mean to separate the sheep from the goats? Verse 32, he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on its left. And then verse 34, we're we're told, then the father, the king, I'm sorry, will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So the very beginning of the judgment of those who are saved is that they are to come. They're not to go, they're to come. And so the first thing we realize about those that are saved is that they are to approach the judge. That they're able to go back into chambers. That they're, that they're intimate, that they're friends, that... that They are the ones who are given access and intimacy and friendship and togetherness with the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to me. Come with me. Come closer. Come. And then, second, blessed of my father, inherit. Now, both these words, blessed of my father and inherit, indicate the activity of God and the relative passivity of those who are blessed and who do inherit. And if we had any question whether we were to notice the relative passivity and the initiative and sovereignty of God, we'd lose our doubt when we see the next statement that those who are blessed by God inherit a kingdom, what? That was prepared for them from the foundation of the world. So they're to inherit They're blessed, and what they inherit and are blessed by has been prepared for them from the foundation of the world. And so this is not a parable that goes on and on about uh, how certain individuals are zealous in pursuit of God, and God looks out and he sees their zeal, and so he tries to go halfway to them, and so they're even more zealous. And pretty soon, you know, they come together because there's such zeal, and and God matches the zeal, and, and then pretty soon he earns the intimacy with God and the salvation. Now, what we see is that God blesses them, and then they inherit a kingdom, and the kingdom that they inherit was prepared for them from the foundation of the world prior to their existence. That's what we say. And so, if you're one of those who is put on the right hand, one of those that is acknowledged to be a sheep, what you're seeing is you're seeing, God bless me, I have inherited this, This was prepared for me from before the foundation of the world. Nobody's having large thoughts of themselves. Nobody's sitting there thinking, I'm sure glad I took the road less traveled. (laughs) 
It's also interesting to notice the blessing that they receive. And the blessing that they receive is a kingdom that was prepared for them. Isn't that interesting? Have you, do you lie, lie awake at night hoping for a kingdom? No, you don't. Because a kingdom brings with it responsibility. We don't lie awake at night hoping for more responsibility. But if you think about it, if you're given a kingdom... What that means is that, again, just like the talents last week, the godly want to do the work of their father. And so he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And so godly people will rejoice that they've been given a kingdom, that they have responsibilities, that they'll be like him in judging. That's what a king does. He leads. He bears responsibility for his subjects. So they're blessed with the kingdom. They're blessed with authority. And this authority was prepared for them from before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Same theme. Before the foundation of the world. Listen. If you don't like reformed doctrine, you don't like predestination, don't like election, all this stuff, come on, people, stick your nose in it and die. It's all over the place. God chooses us. God prepares blessings for us from before the foundation of the world. It's not that he sees us and anticipates our righteousness. It's that God sets his affection on us and then gives us faith. Because it says... He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. His choice gives us our holiness and our blamelessness. In love, he predestined us to adoption. I didn't use the word. The word's in the Bible, all right? In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of a combination of our will and his will. Is that what it says? No, that's not what it says. It says, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of my initiative and his grace. Is that what it says? No. It says, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of my grace and his grace. Is that what it says? No, it it doesn't say that. It says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which... He freely bestowed on us in the beloved, and there's absolutely no way of getting around the agency, the sovereignty, the authority, the initiative, the the blessing of God, and to see us and our passivity as we receive the blessings. I mean, did you notice here, he predestined us to adoption. What does a son who is adopted do when his father dies? He inherits. That's what he does. He inherits. So an adopted son inherits. And then we go back to our text. And what do we see? Inherit, verse 34. Come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Okay? So these are the sheep. These are the ones that go to the right hand. Now why? I've already answered the question, haven't I? The reason that they're blessed, the reason that they're called sheep and are sheep, the reason that they are welcomed 
into heaven is because God has poured out everything they need for salvation, right? That's why. It's not because of their initiative. It's not because they've crawled up the steps of the cathedral on their knees and lit so many votive candles and because they've observed daily mass. And it's not because they've prayed the sinner prayer when they were a child of seven years old in a daily vacation Bible study or school or not because they have uh, gone through the four spiritual laws and prayed the sinner's prayers it's, it's not because they've been baptized in a, in a, in a, with the Trinitarian formula. It's not because they're Lutheran or Presbyterian or Baptist. It's not because they go to a church that believes all the Bible, including predestination. It's not because their grandmother was godly and they love her. Why is it? It's because God has chosen them. By grace you are saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. God chose them. God gave them faith. They believed in Jesus Christ. They are saved. Now, we all know that. And so why does it go on and say this? Verse 35, the judgment has been pronounced. They're saved. Come, Jesus says. Verse 35, 4, my Holy Spirit gave you the gift of faith, and through faith, grace was given to you, and so you were saved. But that's not what it says. It says, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now, there are an infinite variety of ways that you and I have to escape this plain meaning of the text of Scripture. And let me warn you, don't take any of them because they're all broad paths that lead to hell. Jesus means what he says. Jesus is not ignorant of the Apostle Paul. Jesus is not ignorant of Romans. Jesus is not fighting with the rest of the New Testament when he tells us this story. And the Apostle Paul is not disappointed with Jesus here. We're so squirrely and weasely today that we're always coming up with conflicts that allow us to escape into antinomianism and dead orthodoxy and, and crusty, loveless, nasty Christians. And it's amazing that crusty, nasty Christians can talk about grace constantly and be so entirely graceless. Somehow, I never saw anybody naked my whole life. But then I never went to nudist camps. That must be what Jesus meant. Just don't go out there on Rockport Road. Stay away from Rockport Road. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So who did I ever see naked? Are you ready? Fasten your safety belts. You 
Carolina who I saw naked. Do you ever see anybody naked? Most of you have spent your life trying to avoid seeing anybody naked. You know, when old people get old, you put them in nursing homes, so people like Curtis and Adam have to see them naked. You pay them. Actually, you pay the corporations, and Adam and Curtis don't get paid, if you want to know the truth. But <laughs> So who, who have you seen naked? Anybody that qualifies to what Jesus is saying. Okay, here's my naked person. Um, sometimes in Wisconsin, if I got out of my car with my family and started walking to church, I could smell her. Not because she was getting out of her car, but because she had minutes before gotten out of her car and gone into the church, and I could smell her when I got out of my car. She was the bag lady of our community. She drove around in an old American Motors station wagon filled to the brim with every nasty thing you could imagine. She was in her 80s. She was brilliant. And she was completely, completely an idiot. Very perceptive, very discerning, a complete fool. And when you went into the church, the smell was so overpowering that you could not comprehend how you were going to get through worship with her there with you. A few weeks into my tenure there, in the first month, she would go back and forth between the two churches. And so... One Sunday I was preaching, and I was a new pastor, and at that time I was completely tied to this thing that is called a manuscript. And as I'm preaching, looking, preaching, looking, preaching, very uptight, all right, all of a sudden I hear snoring. And it's hard as a new pastor to be tied to your manuscript in a new church and to hear snoring. And then I noticed that everybody was snickering. In other words, I noticed that nobody was listening to me anymore. And so I'm reading and I'm preaching and I'm watching the snickering and I'm trying to figure, and then I notice who the snoring is. It's this woman. She's about over there. She's snoring. And so I think that poor woman, everybody's laughing at her, but some people don't know yet because some people were hard of hearing. Some people were all the way at the other part of the sanctuary. So what I tried to do was I tried to slowly uh, raise my voice when she was making noise, and then take my breaths when she wasn't. And there's a certain pattern to snoring. And so I carried this on for about five minutes, and then all of a sudden, sleep apnea hit her. And instead of her being regular in her pattern, all of a sudden, she's going, and I'm talking, and then, And then she goes, like that. And, of course, it was in between my noises. And bedlam hit the church. Absolute bedlam. Even the most repressed man I've ever known in my life, who was our usher, in the back, had his head almost on the floor. He was laughing so hard. I was behind the pulpit, down on the floor. The choir was gone. Another time she fell asleep, and we had agreed by then that the elders would wake her when she fell asleep, so everybody wasn't laughing at this dear woman. 
And uh, But there were a couple of elders sitting in front of her, and of course they weren't going to do anything because a few weeks before that she'd fallen asleep, and a gentleman behind her had tapped her on the shoulder. She'd say, you touch me again, I'll put my fist right into your, uh, what was it, your, uh, your kisser, right into your kisser. So, like, people didn't want to touch her. So, again, she's snoring, and so potlucks. She had this huge purse. She'd go down the potluck table, and she'd, if there was a plate of rolls there, she'd pull the handle up, and the other one would be there, so it was wide, and she'd take the plate of rolls and pew, whole plate of rolls. If we happened to leave the Christmas candles out, they were like all out of the candle holders. They were in her purse. And she lived out on a farm, and the farm house had a front yard, sort of, and it was filled with boxes and newspapers. The cats everywhere. That was the smell. So I've been there a few years, and she falls asleep again. And everybody knows now not to wake her up. But nobody's listening to the sermon, and everybody's laughing at her. And so finally, I look at the men sitting in front of her, and I say to them, wake up Norma, Steve. Just as I'm preaching, you know, wake up Norma, Steve, just as I'm preaching. She heard it. Bam! She stands up and she says, I am awake. Can a woman rest her eyes? And then she stomps down the aisle or down the row to the aisle and she turns around and she looks at me and she says, she says, well, I'll go ahead and get out of here and I ain't never going to come back here again. So, like, what do you do, you know? There you are. And there were some people that were old and hard-hearing enough that they didn't know that she was falling asleep and everybody was laughing at her, so now they're mad at me. And I can see that they think I've called her out because I said, wake up, Norma. They didn't hear me say Steve. (laughs) She thought I was saying, wake up, Norma. But I was saying, wake up, Norma, Steve, (laughs) you know? Okay, so I go home. My wife has made cookies. And I think, you know, I'm going to go out to her house and take a plate of cookies, right? That was my mistake. I'd heard stories. I didn't believe the stories. So take the cookies out to her house, wind my way through all the magazines and all the newspapers and all the cats. Oh, does it stink. I get to the front door, plate of cookies, knock on the front door. And there in front of me is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is naked. She was naked. Naked. And I'm like, now what do I do? You know, didn't teach me this in seminary. (laughs) So I like kind of look in her eyes and say, here are some cookies, Norma. I'm sorry about today. (laughs) And I walk away. Well, I get home and the phone is ringing as I come up to the door. And as I walk in, Mary Lee says, Tim, the phone's for you. So I go pick up the phone and it's one of our woman elders. True. And I get on the phone and she says, Tim, I'm so sorry about what happened this morning. We should have helped you. But she said, 
Knowing you, you're probably going to want to go out and see her and try to patch things up. She said, don't do it. She said, make sure that if you're going to talk to her, you take somebody with you. And I said, Barb, it's too late. (laughs) Just a few minutes too late. Now, what's the point of telling you this story? If I told you that everybody in that community despised her, made fun of her, and laughed at her, You'd believe me, wouldn't you? Right? Do you know something? We went through leaving the PCUSA at that church and going into the PCA. It was a great dividing of that community, and I loved it for precisely that point. I actually believe in churches dividing. I think it's good. Because it gives a hint of what's going to happen soon. And in that community, what happened was we decided to leave the denomination that thought sodomy was good, and go into a denomination that still thought that it was a sin that many people tempted by should still run from. That's the only difference. Everybody knows that there are certain sins that we're tempted by, right? And so we decided to leave the denomination that would tell everybody that was committed to sexual sin in our church to keep on in your sexual sin. The denomination that said abortion is a blessing from God. All right. Nomination that in its document said that my brothers with cystic fibrosis and hemophilia should be able to be diagnosed in the womb so they could be killed in the womb, that that would be a blessing from God. My brothers, cystic fibrosis and hemophilia. All right. We decided to go into a denomination that said that those things were anathema. And, you know, it divided the whole community. Can you understand that? It divided the whole community. And would you be surprised if I told you that all the rich people stayed back in the denomination? If I told you that the church was on the National Register of Historic Places and that we had to leave that church, if I told you it was a beautiful New England church with clear three Trinitarian glass windows, a copper shed, clad steeple with bells that we rang at the beginning of every worship service, white clapboard siding on a corner lot with mature, deciduous trees. If I told you that sitting in the manse in the morning, I could see people on the state highway stop, get out of their cars and take a picture of me, but not me, the church. And then I told you that the rich people stayed in that denomination. And I told you I believe in division of churches. Do you understand this? And do you know something? Then I came to Bloomington. And guess what? Shortly after I came to Bloomington, do you know what I got? I got a letter from that woman. A spiritual letter from that woman. Thanking me for my work. (laughs) you think I've ever gotten a more precious letter from anybody in my churches? Who is your Norma Barden? You don't see Jesus in her, do you? 
And you're saved by grace, so it doesn't matter that you don't see Jesus. Is there any Norma Barden here today? Anybody stink? Is anybody here today who smells because you love them and drive them here? Is there anybody here because of you at all? Is there anybody at all in your life who smells and is naked? And they're your friend. Now listen, people. If you think that I'm making myself out to be good by telling you the story of Norma Barton, I assure you I had no choice in the matter. (laughs) I didn't go out and look for Norma. She was there when I showed up. And furthermore, I got paid to love Norma. None of you get paid to love Norma. So all my rewards are shot from the beginning because you pay me to say these things, to do these things. It's not about me doing anything right. But it is about you doing some things right. And I'm asking you, who here smells and is here because you love Jesus? Who here has no education? Who here can't speak English? Who here has no green card? Do you understand why I say green card, or is that confusing to you? In other words, an illegal alien. Have you had an illegal alien to your dining room table, or is it against the law? If they wanted to rent your house, would you rent your house to them? (laughs) Well, you know you would. But about your table, well, I'm not going to consort with known criminals. Well, I mean, I won't consort at my table. I'll take their money for rent. And I'll have them feed me, and I'll give them tips. At the, I mean, come on. Do you like Mexican food? Who do you think is serving you? We have all these compartments. I pay taxes for that, and, and people should abide by the law when it comes to immigration, and, and, and Norma should be institutionalized, and... and And we have clean lives. You know, all our children are above average. Our women are strong and our men are good looking. Right? If God will judge us as individuals based on the naked and the lonely and the sick, certainly he will judge churches. And I guarantee you that you can separate the churches of this community by whether or not there are people in them that that stink. Okay? Okay. I'm going to end with this. Do you think that there's anybody in your life that is naked that is Jesus? Do you think there's anybody in your life that's hungry that is Jesus? Do you think there's anybody who is lonely and sick that is Jesus? Do you think so? Another way to ask it is, if I asked you to come up right now and to write on this table the person in your life who is naked and has been Jesus to you, 
whom you have loved. Would you have any names to write here? Everybody that has names that they can write, raise your hand. Okay, I sucker punched you. You know what the final thing that we're told about those people that are righteous and that come to heaven is? What are we told? What did they say when they were asked that question? When did I ever see you naked? When did I ever see you hungry? When did I ever see you sick, lonely, in jail? I never, ever, ever saw you there, Jesus. When did I ever feed you? I never fed you. And then those who are cast out to hell because they didn't clothe and they didn't feed and they didn't give water, what do they say? They say, oh, oh, well, we, I mean, you know, we, I, well, I never, I did too. And so what we see is that the righteous are absolutely convinced that they have nothing to give to God. And the wicked are absolutely convinced that they have much that God will accept. (laughs) Did I snooker you? Okay, now I'm going to ask again. (laughs) Raise your hand. How many of you have somebody in your life who is Jesus and is naked and you can write their name down? How many of you have somebody? Come on. All of you that had your hands up, put them up. Put them up. Come on. People, listen. The truth is you do have those people. Because this is just me. And you don't mind in front of me saying, yes, I have been walking by faith. Because that's what I tell you to do from Scripture. And so you want to say in front of people here, I live by faith. Right? And those of you that had your hands up, when you stand before the Holy God, you will not put your hand up. But in front of me, you should put your hand up. All right, now again, how many of you have somebody who's naked? that you love as Jesus in your life. Come on, put your hands up. Come on. Okay, now some of you don't, do you? When you don't put your hands up, it's because you're under conviction, right? Okay, find them. They're there. Jesus doesn't give us an explanation about how to find them. Right? Right? It's like a child. Well, Dad, you told me that I should cut the grass, but Dad, where is the oil? And where is the gas can? And I can't find the cord to pull. And should I cut it on an angle or across or up and down? And, and should I trim it this week or next week? And, Dad, should I do it on Friday or Saturday or Monday? 
<laughs> and the dad looks at the son and the dad says, forget it, I'll do it myself. In other words, the problem isn't that we don't know who's naked, who's hungry, who's thirsty, who's lonely, who's sick. The problem is we do not believe that we will be judged on the basis of how we care for them. That's the problem. And I'm just quoting Calvin. So don't get all theological on me. The problem is we do not believe in a judgment of works. That's the problem. Jesus is very clear. We will be judged on our works. You say, oh, yeah, but it's, but it's, but it's grace. It's grace. It's grace. And I tell you, of course it's grace. And you have absolutely no idea whether or not you're saved until you have a naked woman who stinks to high heaven and you love her. Don't talk to me about grace. Talk to me about your holiness. Because the Bible says, without holiness, no man will see And you say, but Tim, resolve the tension. You know, it's minor. Make it major. You know, explain that by grace, through faith, we are saved. This is not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Not by works. Not by works. Not by works. Not by works. And I say, okay, I'm not talking about the works that you'd boast about. I'm talking about the works that you wouldn't even notice. I'm talking about the works that your mouth would be silent about in front of God. Those works. The works that Jesus describes, that nobody boasts about, those works, of course the works that you're going to boast about will not save you. Of course they will not prove that you have faith in Jesus Christ. Because they're not the works of faith. We don't boast about the works of faith. But there's something here that Jesus is talking about. There's something. What is it? In other words, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is what? For it is, come on, what does it say? God who works in you. There's no conflict. There's none at all. If you have no works, you're not saved. Because you can't be saved and not have works. Without holiness, no man will see God. That is God speaking. And when you have true saving faith in Jesus Christ, there will never be an absence of naked people and hungry people and lonely people and sick people in your life. They'll be everywhere. And then you'll go do that Weasley thing about sins of omission and commission, and you'll be scrupulous to avoid sins of commission and and start telling you that God's not really serious about sins of omission. And then you'll feel guilty about that, and you'll confess that as a sin, and then you'll see even more naked people. (laughs) And then you will know that you have faith. Because you'll go to God every day and you'll confess your sins. I did not love him 
I did not serve her. I was too busy to do that. I pay taxes for this. They're illegal aliens. They're, you know. So I'm not going to resolve your attention anymore now. But I am going to say to you this week, I want you to pay particular attention to Jesus Christ. Not to me and not to your wife or husband or friend, but to Jesus Christ. On the bench, on the bench, during the soccer game, Hannah, on the bench, who is the person that nobody wants to talk to during the soccer game? Are you talking to him? Who is the player on the team that all the varsity dudes make fun of? You know, I was there. Now, I'm talking to Hannah, but I'm talking to all of you. Who's the person in the Ph.D. program you're in that everybody runs from when they, when they show up? Who is the person in your family that everybody talks about behind their back? Who's the person in this church that you don't want to have to love? Father, all of us are a piece of work, and that's why we need the righteousness and the blood of Jesus Christ. And, Father, we ask you that you will reach down in your compassion and that you will surround us with people who smell and who are naked, people who don't speak English, people who have different skin color, people who are poor, people who have black stubs for teeth, people who have bad acne, people who never shut up, people who touch us, people who have bad breath. Father, we pray that you will help us to see you, your son, Jesus Christ, and to love him. So that we may hear those most cherished of all words we could ever hear. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Give us faith, Father, in Jesus, that we may die taking up our cross as he took up his. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.